need an extra work of grace. I long for change. Take a moment now and bring that to the Lord. What does your heart need? What does our heart need? What's that area God is speaking to? Take a moment now and just ask God to help you there. Don't try to do something. It's grace that we need, not works. He knows you. He loves you. He created you. You're no accident. You're no mistake. God created you in his image. He knows what you need. He's a gracious father. He's not far away. He's right here, right now as a father and a savior and a friend. Ask the father. He loves to give good gifts. Father, you know us all. You know us, every hair on our head, every cell in our body, every need in our heart. God, meet our needs today in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated, please. As I continue to speak on sharing faith, we can call it evangelism. We can be politically correct and call it proselytizing. I like that word. You know, like, like we got people cornered in the corner, you know, and they can't move and we're demanding that they come to Jesus or else be beheaded or something like that. Proselytizing. Yeah, proselytizing. Those Christians are at it again. But really, for the local church and for you and me, it, it's probably more of a friendship evangelism. How can I be used to, with my closest and my dearest, my friends and family, acquaintances, workers and associates and neighbors and that kind of stuff, the people I see get a cup of coffee from every day? Or How can I be used in God's kingdom to carry the message, to carry the word? I mean, basically, unless you are called to be an evangelist, most of our work for the kingdom will be done in a friendship manner. You know, befriending people. It's a hard issue. And we spoke about that last week when I spoke out of 1 Corinthians chapter 9 out of Paul's life. And we know the famous text that I became a Jew to a Jew to win the Jew. I became to the weak. I became as weak to win the weak. And those under the law, I became as someone not under the law, but under the law of Christ. So those who are without law... The, the amoral society keep you one to Christ. He said, I become all things to all people. He acquiesced to people's needs for the sake of soul winning, for the sake of, of entering into their heart, not just coming with truth and say, repent, but to win the person's affection over, to win their trust over, to win a hearing for the gospel. And so last week's message was entitled, Friend of Sinners. And when you think of that, who do you think of first? But it wasn't. It was a little bit of twist in there, a little bit of uh, twisting it around. We're a friend of sinners. We have to become all things to all people. We can't be self-righteous. We can't be lording it over people. We can't be uh, holy and then thou. We have to. We have to come as a servant. Paul said, "I made myself a servant." He says it three times. I became a servant. He took it upon himself to take the teachings of Christ who said, I didn't come here to be served, but to serve and give my life a ransom. And it's it's, it's an act of the will. And I want to ensure everybody here, sharing faith with people is an act of the will. 
I don't do it because I, I had some kind of a special epiphany from Jesus. I, I liked special epiphanies. I can't tell you I've had many, but I've had a couple of things that touched my heart greatly. But it really is, it's, you see the need, and you feel the burden, and you ask God for help, and then we share the faith. Amen? So it really is a heart-to-heart issue. We spoke about that last week, but I want to speak about some more heart issues today. Because our heart is not the only heart in the equation. What about the heart of the people that are hearing the message? If the Bible said nothing about it, I wouldn't say anything. But the Bible is kind of clear on that. And we see that in chapter uh, 13 of Matthew. So let's go to chapter 13 of Matthew. For some reason, my technology's in Psalm 51. That's a good psalm to preach out of. Starting verses 1 to 9, I believe it is. Something's wrong. Forgive me. Okay. Starting in verse 1, I'll read the verse 9, and then I will go to verse 20 and read a little more. Okay. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. And great crowds gathered about Christ, so that he got into a boat and sat down. And while the crowd stood on the beach, he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil, but when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked the seed. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. That is the parable of the sower. Most of us know it. Jesus gives us an interpretation Starting in verse 18. Do we have that up there? I think we do. Okay. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one, that's Satan, comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. That is what was sown along the path, the rocky path. No depth. As for what was sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word in the meal and he receives it with great joy and happiness. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. He turns and runs. As for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word. But the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, choke out the word and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on the good soil, the fourth one, this is the one who hears the word and he understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields. In one case, a hundredfold, in another sixty, in another thirty. Let's pray. Father, we ask you to bless our service, Father God. Give us understanding of these things, Father God. Let these words not fall on empty ears here today in this church. 
Let this church be a church of 100-fold, 60-fold, 30-fold. Let this church and everybody seated here today be those who hear the message. And it pierces the heart. And it changes the character. And it changes our whole life, Father God. Would you bless us today with the ministry of the Holy Spirit? In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Sowing and reaping. Being a sower. Can you consider yourself and can I consider myself as a sower of the word of God? Was that just Jesus or the apostles or is is it the evangelist, the street evangelist, is is it the pastor? Or do we all have a role in sowing the seed? A rhetorical question. The answer is simply, of course. We're all called to sow the word of God. It's interesting here how, as Christians, God gives us extraordinary insight, not just on how we should live. Becoming a Jew to a Jew and a Greek to a Greek to become all things to all people that some might be saved. But he also gives us insight into the field, the harvest, the world. And it's very kind of God. He didn't have to do that, did he? But he was kind. Because Matthew 13 finds us in the middle of a discipleship uh, program. He's discipling people. And so he's going to go into a lesson on the human heart. And I'll get into that in a moment. But I was thinking about this, and I was thinking about uh, geology. This is where I go, from theology to geology. And I was thinking about how when a geologist goes out to mine gold, you just don't go out to a hill and there's dirt and there's a cave, and you say, well, I'm going to mine gold. That's foolishness. What they do, they look for certain signs that say, you know something? There might be gold in them their hills. You ever hear that song? So I'm going to quote Chris Ralph. He's a geologist. He had a question. He says this. Sometimes I ask. Sometimes I'm, I get asked. What should I look for when metal detected? That will tell me there's a presence of gold in the ground. I always respond that I wish there was a simple answer. There's not a simple answer. The problem is that gold occurs in many types and deposits. And what indications work great for one type of deposit doesn't always work well for another. Sounds like the human heart we're talking about in Matthew chapter 4. Why does it work? Why do some people receive the word of God in one deposit and other people want nothing to do with it? He goes on to give eight characteristics to look for. Geological indications that there might be a good chance there's gold here. Otherwise, don't waste your time. He goes on to say the geological concepts and indications that are most important for finding gold vary from location to location. There's no one indicator of gold that always works. He goes on to say perhaps the most important thing in prospecting is to know the characteristics of the district you're hunting. It's like sports. There is a home court advantage for prospecting. I like that. When you know what you're up against, when you're good at it, there's a home court advantage. Now, I played sports for years. And the home court advantage is, in basketball, that's the sixth player on the field. Did you ever hear that expression? Because the home court advantage, it gets you going. There's nothing like hearing the team's name going or hearing your own personal name. It's, there's, that, there's that extra man on the field. 
He goes on to say, like sports, there's the home court advantage for prospectors who have learned the particulars of working in the field. Do you know you can get good at soul winning? Do you know you can learn the spiritual terrain? You can see indicators that say, you know something, I'm going to walk an extra mile with this person. I can see something there. God is revealing this. There's, there's a hostility. There's a sense of, I don't believe, but I still want to hear more. Jude talks about that. He says, be patient with those who are doubting. It's not a cookie cutter approach. We are to walk the extra mile. If, if we're persecuted, we have to pray for people. We're to be kind to people. We're to be nice to people. We are to turn the extra cheek. Because you never know when someone's going to actually come to the Lord. We don't know what kind of soil we're dealing with. But there are indicators. And I want to go through Matthew's report over here on the sower. And we've got to look at ourselves as sower. We've got to see where we are. How we doing. Are we getting good at it? And let me encourage everybody here. You can get good. When you know the ways of God and you see the indicators, you can get real good at sharing your faith. And I ask you a question. Would you want to be good at sharing your faith? Do you want to be good at sowing? How many people want to be good at reaping? Everybody got happy. But you don't reap what you have in... So to be a good reaper, you have to be a good... It's easy arithmetic. One plus one equals two, okay? That's in the spiritual language that it is. But here's how it works. We can get better at it. We can enjoy it. We can lead people out of darkness. We can be used by God to lead people out of darkness and sin. And we spoke about those things last week. And there's no greater joy than when you're used by God in someone else's life. There's nothing like it. You know, this, this, I, I care for nothing else. I want to be used by the Lord. So anyway, more to be said. But let's get into this text over here. And we're going to speak about it. About these four parables. or these four, this, this parable that speaks about Four different human hearts. That's what it's speaking about. It's the receptivity of the human heart to the word of God. Why do some people just gravitate towards Christianity, towards Jesus, towards Christians? They gravitate as though they were born to be Christians. And why is it other times you would think, why is this person cursing at me? Why is this person, why does my mother want nothing to do with me? You never know. And I say that because this text finds us in a very, how can I say, peculiar time in Jesus' ministry. He's reflecting. He's reflecting on what just took place in Matthew chapter 12. Now, I'm, not going to, I'm going to assume you're not too familiar with John chapter 12, but the Pharisees just said he cast out demons by the power of Beelzebub, Satan. Okay? His mother and his brother are knocking on the door. The homie's in now saying, we want to speak to my son. Because you know why? They thought he lost his mind. We know that from John chapter 7. Jesus' mother and his brothers thought he lost 
And he says, who's my mother? Or who's my brother? But those who do the will of God, that is my mother, that is my brother, that is my sister. He healed the man, and the Pharisees, instead of repenting, guess what they wanted to do? They wanted to kill him. So now we find in verse 1, he's on the seaside, he gets in a boat, and what we have over here, well I'll read it, that same day Jesus went out out of the house, where Mary came looking for him, he didn't say, mom I'm here, he uses it as an object lesson to teach about who his real mother is, who his real brother is, and who his real sisters are, those who do the will of God, so he's coming out of this house, and he sat beside the sea. And the great crowds gathered around him so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach waiting to hear his words. And he told them many things in parables, saying the sower went out to sow. There is a reflective nature here in verses 1 and 2. Jesus is reflecting on all the unbelief he just saw from his own family. All the unbelief he saw from the Pharisees, though they saw the healing. All the unbelief, they, they, they said it was Satan was casting out these, these demons. And he is sitting back now, and now he decides, you know something, from now on I'm going to speak in parables. You know why? Their hearts are so hard, they don't want to know. Now he's raising up 12 disciples. So he uses this as an object lesson of why some people believe, why some people don't believe, why some people believe fast, but they're gone tomorrow, why other people believe and last for a long time, but something more important than God gets in their life and then they're gone. And why would anybody believe in the first place and you're being persecuted by everybody, but you still believe and you grow as a Christian? These are real heart issues. And as disciples, we need to know that. We need to know why. I don't know why any one person, but I know in the world, when I go out and I speak about the Lord, everybody falls into these four conditions of the human heart. I also know from experience that people can look like they want nothing to do with God. But over time, guess what? They change. So even though God gives us a framework on the four soils, to you and me, it's not an exact science. Are you with me? You can't say, soil one. God can say that. Jesus can say that. You and I can never say that. We also can't say, soil four. Look at them. They're, they're doing everything around the church. And a week later, guess what? You never see them again. So I don't know. One thing's for sure. When someone has genuinely repented and accepted Christ in their heart, you can be sure there's going to be fruit. Spiritual fruit, whether it's 100 or 60 or 30, there is a changed life. Period. There's no guesswork. There's a changed life. So we here we are, verses 1 and 2 in this reflective nature. Jesus reflecting on all the unbelief in chapter 12. With all the hard-heartedness in mind, Jesus starts teaching kingdom dynamics to his disciples who are going to take his place as the sowers in the world. He's the seed that's going to be sown. It's his body, his death on the cross, his dying for our sins, his going into the tomb. That's why he's going to be preaching, this great and glorious resurrection. He teaches us in John that he's the seed. Unless a kernel of wheat falls into the ground, that's the crucifixion, and dies, it remains alone. 
But if it dies and goes to the ground, it bears much fruit. That's the resurrection. That's salvation. That's the message. That's the word being sown here. It's the word of the gospel that Jesus came into the world to die for sinners and then rise again for their justification and to tell the world that a loving Savior, a friend of sinners, has come to bring hope and peace and joy into lives that otherwise would be dominated by the evil one and dominated by sin and dominated by a worthless life. But people come to Jesus and their lives are changed from the inside out. That's the message. That's the gospel. That's the seed to be sown. This first parable with its explanation is a great place to start when we want to understand what's going on out in the world. I know my heart has to be right. I know I'm called to be a Jew to a Jew and a Greek to a Greek. I know Brian Martin's called to be all things to all people that some might be saved. I know I am to make myself a servant to other people. I am to come alongside people. I know my heart's condition that I'm called upon to depend upon the Lord to be changed on the inside out. So I can make the word of God accommodating to people. Are you with me? It can't be, well, repent or perish or, or, or turn or burn and I'll see you tomorrow. Well, I'm, I'm to enter into someone's life and to help them on their journey of life and, and along there share the word of God. So Jesus is preparing his disciples and I love this because I need to hear this. Because I am a concerned citizen of the kingdom of God. I, I want to know, Lord, well, how come they're not believing? Even Jesus was perplexed. In his hometown of Galilee and Capernaum, he was like, he couldn't do, he did few miracles because of their unbelief. And what does he say? A prophet is not in his hometown. You know, there's this this familiarity that people like, you got the message and they look at you like, but I know you, you're the ex-trunk. I know you, you're a trainer in the gym. I, I, I can't receive the gospel from you. You're the secretary. I, I know your children. We grew up together. We ran together. Are you telling me you're better than me now? They can't receive the gospel. Not everybody, but some. Am I right? He's going to give us explanation now. On the first soil, listen to this. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, The evil one, that's Satan, comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. Now understand something. When Jesus says it's sown in the heart, to you and me it might not look like it penetrated far, amen? But if God says it was sown, guess what? It was sown. It might have been rejected so quickly it doesn't look like it was sown. But God holds that person accountable and says, the gospel is sown in your heart. Didn't stick around long, but you're accountable. So he's saying here, what was sown in the heart, it was it's snatched away by the evil one. And we say, but, but how has that happened over here? It was sown in the heart. But this is what he means. What we have represented here is the calloused heart. The spiritually calloused heart. That refuses to believe no matter what they see. This was the Pharisees. The Pharisees saw miracle after miracle. These are religious leaders. They were the ones that should have been the eyes and the ears of all of Israel. They should have been the Messiah's here. They should have been heralded. 
heroine, Messiah has come, but instead they're seeing miracle after miracle, they're seeing the dead raised, and they're trying to plot to kill him. You see, they're the ones whose hearts were so calloused. They refused to believe no matter what Jesus said or did. Made no difference. There are people today, no matter what they see, no matter what they hear, they can see a changed life. I can tell somebody, do you remember who I was? Look what God has done to my heart now. You were there, we ran, you know what I did. Mom, you saw what happened to me. I had to tell my mother that. I told you that, me and Terry were telling my mother about Jesus. And I said, why did you leave the religion? My mother never went to church in a life. <laughs> but all of a sudden, she got spiritual. <laughs> never. I never heard a pray. I never heard of anything. And now she was concerned about why I was leaving the family religion. <laughs> Praise God. Thank you. But you walk with them, and years later, my mother came to know the Lord. But these are the ones that refuse to hear. No matter how many times they hear about the love of Jesus, no matter how many times they see a walking dead man telling them about the good news of Jesus, they refuse to believe. Their heart is more in alliance with Satan than with God. This person has no idea of the satanic activity that's going on around them. They have no idea... Of what 1 John 5.19 says, that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. They have no idea. They have no idea what 2 Timothy 2.26 says, that Satan, the god of this world, has blinded their eyes, their minds, to understanding the gospel. They don't see this activity. Nor do they they don't care. They don't care about God. Don't care about Satan. Don't care about Jesus. Don't care about you. Don't care about the message. They are totally indifferent. They hear it, but they're so callous and indifferent, they don't give it 30 seconds of consideration that you know something? Maybe I do need to be forgiven. I mean, who wouldn't think that? Who wouldn't for a moment say, you know something? Maybe, maybe my friend has something here. Maybe I do need to be forgiven. There was that time, and oh, I did it. Not even a consideration that they are on God's radar, that they are under God's microscope, or they're accountable to God, or responsible for the behavior. Totally indifferent. Don't even care. So when Jesus is saying, when you speak to such a heart like that, there's no chance. They don't consider it at all. Again, Christ knows who everybody's heart is. I don't, though. So I'm called to walk the extra mile and the extra mile and the extra mile. I'm called to. So are you. The second heart is a little different. This is the flash in the pan conversion. This is, we've seen these over the years. He goes on to say, As for what was sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word of the gospel and immediately receives it with joy. Very happy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. See, unlike the first heart, who never for a moment entertains the message that they need forgiveness, that Christ died for them, that uh, Christ rose for them, and 
They consider it. They, they even say amen to it. And immediately they receive this great joy and this great hope comes in their heart and, and they're in. They don't contemplate it much. They just, they like what, they like the sound of it. And they receive it and it mimics true conversion. It's there. But they're never really thinking through the implications. Never. It's only the happy song they like. This heart is just shallow and it's empty and has no real depth. There's no real roots going deep down over here. It's all superficial. It's all a surface salvation. It all looks good. It all looks right. But it's like a blade of grass that shoots up to the sky and, and on a hot day with just enough moisture in the soil and it, and it shoots up right away. But you can see underneath that there's really nothing there. Until moon, noonday comes and then the scorching heat comes and guess what happens to that blade of grass? It quickly dies. So we have a picture over here of a, someone who confesses, I need Jesus. They come to him. They say, yes, this is superficial joy. I can't tell. But as soon as persecution comes, and that's the heat. And this is the way it goes. 2,000 years ago, it would have been a Jew who converted to Christianity who said that Jesus is Messiah. And all of a sudden, someone would shoot them down saying, he's a crucified criminal. Cursed is anybody who hangs on what? A tree. You cannot believe in this Jesus Messiah guy. He was a good guy. And he might have been some kind of holy man, but he was not the Messiah. He was not the son of God. He was not the son of David. And they would get all scared from the persecution. Guess what? For fear of getting thrown out of the synagogue, what would the Jew do? He'd retreat. He'd run. For you and me today, it's more like, are you telling me Jesus is the only way? And all of a sudden the heat comes on. Are you telling me you believe in hell? Are you telling me I'm not going to heaven? Are you telling me? Are you telling me? You ever hear that before? Are you telling me? And I say, yeah. That's what Jesus is telling all of us. And then persecution comes and they can't handle that kind of persecution. So guess what? They're gone. I can tell you how many times I've seen that. I hope they come back. I've seen that more and more and more times. There's a genuine joy there, but there's no depth. They don't realize what Jesus says. You must pick up your cross and deny yourself and follow. And what happens? They fall away. It's there for a while. It could be short-lived. It could be momentary. But sooner or later, Jesus is teaching us something here that sometimes family and friends and co-workers could be the greatest culprits against such people. I think everybody who comes out of any religious home 2,000 years ago would have been out of uh, the Jewish home in the synagogue. Today coming out of Roman Catholicism or or Greek Orthodoxy and coming out of some mainstream uh, 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 Christian religions, when you come out and all of a sudden you're filled with the Holy Spirit and all of a sudden you're like, Mom, Dad, I found Jesus. I got hope in my heart. I'm, I'm forgiving them. I, I want to live for God. And all this kind of language brings on what? It brings on persecution. And that's, me and John always say this. It's like, you don't know until the heat is on. That's when you know. 
That's when you see, you watch somebody going through persecution and they're, like, they're crying and they're scared and they don't know and they're upset. And you bring them to the Word and you show them and you teach them sensitivity. You teach them patience and long-suffering. And, but they've got to go through that. It's a trial of what? It's a trial of fire. It's a baptism of fire. Our friends do that. We all do it. We all go through it. The next one, a little different now. This one's no way. It's going from bad to worse. He goes like this. As for the third one that was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word. This is the person that hears the gospel message. He receives it. He's in the church. He, he might even be water baptized. She might be water baptized. There might be tithers. There might be givers. There might be preachers. Oh, yeah. There's a season in their life that they hear and they receive, but slowly but surely, Jesus says, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches, and Mark's version says, and desire for other things, choke the word and prove it unfruitful. This is the one that really gets to me, and I'll tell you why. This is the heart that also confesses Jesus as Lord, but has gone a lot further than the first two. This is the one that's walking with, he's walking with the Lord. They're walking with the Lord. But by all external appearances, this is a genuine convert who loves Christ. Their downfall is not with people who persecute them. They went toe-to-toe with family members in a synagogue and other people that shot them down theologically. and died. They went toe-to-toe with all that. And they said, no, we believe Jesus is the only way. You've got to come to Christ, otherwise you're lost for eternity. You have to come. They fought that. What they did not consider was the temptation and seduction of the world. The earthly cares, not persecution, not tribulation, the slow, subtle, year in and year out, seducing, temptation, passions and desires of the flesh and of the world. Slowly being worn down. That's what they didn't see. This is the preoccupied heart. Before the gospel came, or even after it came was sown, other things were more important to this person. Things of the world. Sometimes it could take years, even decades, to, to finally manifest itself. Only time and circumstance can reveal this heart. Only time and circumstance slowly but surely comes and chokes out the word. What it means here when it says choke out, it means a slow dying. Suffocate. This person we just read about is slowly, spiritually suffocating. It's a brutal, brutal death. But that's what's taking place here, spiritually. This is a person that by all intended appearances has been doing everything they can to follow God. But it's only on their agenda. It's only on their word. They're going to do it my way. A little extra work, a little extra money, little things of the world, the, the deceitfulness of riches, just the desires for other things. Slowly but surely, all 
linen and I think it's gold, it's fool's gold. And slowly but surely, they disappear into the world. Unfruitful. The things of the world, idolatry, started to crowd out devotion to the one true God. Things and possessions and desires became more important than holding on to the Lord. It's a slow death. These people find themselves trying to live in two worlds, justifying one. But you know what Jesus says, that you can't serve God and what? Mammon. Sooner or later, you're going to love one and hate the other. Even as Christians. Uh, let me just, let me take a side note over here, give a disclaimer. When you and I are saved, especially as American Christians, few of us, if any of us, really know what poverty is. Am I right? You and I can easily fall into this category because of all the luxury and the convenience around us. But what happens as time goes on, we really see that God is the only true passion of our heart. Nothing else satisfies. I can get caught up with a moment thinking that something's going to make me happy. But guess what? It doesn't. It might take a year, two years. Sooner or later, that which I'm chasing proves to be what? Empty. It never really can replace God because I'm a true convert. This person wasn't. So things could finally come in and become more important than God himself. Doesn't mean you or I can't get caught up with chasing some false dream or something. But sooner or later, because we are genuine converts, God wins. Amen? Because God will let us follow false things and he'll go, all right, when you're ready to find out that's empty, let me know. Give me a child of God. Oh, it's been six years. Don't worry. I'm watching you go down the wrong road over here. It's been 15 years. I'm, the, the Lord is slow and patient and long-suffering and he's kind and he's waiting. And then, boom, we fall flat on our face and God goes, are you ready? Yeah. Come back. I love you, child. And we have nowhere else to go because we know the world is empty. We know the deceitfulness are, are, are empty. The desire for other things are all empty. We've tried that. I've tried that. I know that. Am I alone? No, as Christians, we, 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 we go this way, but God comes and he loves us and he beats, us, he beats it out of us. Yeah, at least out of me, because I, I need to be beaten once in a while. But this is the one whose conscience finally loses the battle. He's spiritually exhausted in the flesh. He tried to live the Christian life out without being converted. He tried to live the teachings of Christ out without a regenerated heart. He tried to do it without a dependence on the Holy Spirit. He tried to do it without a dependence on the church. He tried to do it without a dependence on the word of God. And finally exhausted and beaten down by the cares of the world, the desires for riches and other things, he says... God's out, mammon's in. This heart was slowly, spiritually choked to death. It's a horrific spiritual death. I mean, Paul teaches this in 1 Timothy 6, that many have what? Shipwrecked their faith. What did they love? They loved money. For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. 
He shipped her at the faith. They, they weren't faithful. They were here. They were in the church. They were worshiping. They were evangelizing. Demas was one of Paul's best friends. He, but he deserted Paul for what? For the things of the world. The last soil. This last seed is the fertile ground. This is the good heart. Not the perfect heart. It's the good heart. It's the good soil. It produces something. It's strength. This heart strength. Listen to me. This good soil. This fourth soil. This, this soil that produces something. It's strength. Is not because there's an absence of weakness and frailty or humanity. It's not an absence of mistakes. It's not an absence of sin. It's not an absence of going the wrong way at the wrong time. It's not that. But a a dependence on God at all times of their life. They're willing to learn and obey. They're not super Christian. They're saying, God, change me. If I got to learn the hard way, I'll learn the hard way. But I want to learn, Father. I want to learn. That's their strength. Their strength is not an absence of weakness. It's the presence of humility. That's the strength. Because God loves the humble. What does he do? He exalts the humble. That's where the strength of the false soil lies. Not on how good I am or I can figure it out. Or how good you are or how good you can figure it out. We're all weak, frail human beings. The only way we make it is this humility that depends on God at all times and manners of their life. These are the ones who have an ear to hear. Hearing with an intention to obey. There's nothing like when I'm preaching and you can see the hungry just soaking in the word of God. They desire to obey even when it hurts. They like to read the small print. They like to read the print that says, you must pick up your cross and follow me. Deny yourself. It's, it's like this love-hate relationship. It's like, ah, yes, Lord, I have to. They're hearing with the intention to obey. It's foundational to their life now. That's the good soil. We can say it's the beginning and foundation of all true spirituality. This this desire to want to hear the word of God. To hunger for the word of God. There's nothing like when you... When you're when you speaking and you're counseling and you pull out the word of God and, and, you, and, you, and you're going through the word of God and you're going through the truth and you're going through the revelation of God that he made to us and, and the Christian is soaking it up. You know what it's like? It's like a newborn babe who craves the spiritual milk of the word. And we have our babies here. And we had them the other night. And he saw the bottle come. And he was like, if he could jump out of my arms to get the bottle of milk. He craved the milk. He had to have the milk. He would not say no to the milk. He knew he needed the milk. And that's what a Christian is. No matter how weak we are. No matter how frail we are. No matter how we struggle in the world. No matter how many times we struggle against in the fight against Satan. And against the flesh. We desire the milk of the word of God. Give it to me pastor. Tell me the truth. 
over the course of their life, they've weathered all the storms of tribulation and persecution from family or friends of others. They weather the storm of the seducing influences of the world that say, come over here, Brian. It's better here. Smoke a little more. Drink a little more. Women are over here. This is over here. And you're fighting it. And you're out in the moral wasteland. All you got is nothing but the word of God. It's all you have. And the prayers of the saints and the presence of God in your spirit. And, and though you limp through sometimes and you're beaten on one side and you're beaten on the other side, you still make it across the finish line because God has drawn us across. That's the good soil. Whether it's the lust of the flesh that's saying, oh, that looks so good. The prideful desires of life, the possessions of life. If I work a little harder, if I work a little more, if I get a little more money, I can get more things. Give me the things. This is a man or a woman who grows up in Christ and counts all things as rubbish. And sometimes painfully and tearfully we come to understand that nothing matters in life but the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Listen to the way Moses did it. By faith, when Moses had grown up, he might as well say this, I'm going to paraphrase. By faith, Moses, when he finally had grown up, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. But choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of a sinful life that he had in his adopted father's house. He considered the reproaches of Christ of greater wealth, being persecuted for the name of Christ as more greater than all the treasures of Egypt. Because he was looking for the reward. As I said, these folks aren't perfect, but they desire perfect. You and I will never, ever be perfect. But God only knows the tearful nights we all have when we're crying out to be perfect like Christ. Listen to John MacArthur. A question he always gets, how do you know if someone's a genuine convert? You know when something's good when you never have to hear it a second time. He said there's two things. He asks a person two questions. What's your greatest desire? And if they start giving you anything but, I want to be more like Christ, something's wrong. And then you ask them, what's your greatest failure? That I'm not like Christ. In those two answers is a revelation of the human heart, of the Christian heart, that speaks volumes of what's taken place in someone's life. And I ask you those questions today. What's your greatest disappointment? What's your greatest desire? What's your greatest hunger? That's a learning curve. I'm not going to say a young Christian is going to rattle that right off the top of their head. But as we go through life and we realize all these other things fail, we do come to the place that, you know, my greatest desire is to be more like Christ. I hate my failures. I hate failing the Lord. I hate failing my wife. I hate failing the congregation. I hate failing. 
And I bring it to the Lord, I preach the gospel to myself, and I say, Christ, thank you again. Thank you for sustaining me, strengthening me. Let me close with this. This 30, 60, 100 fold here, this is not about a competitive spirit between Christians. All right, this is not about, you got 30, I've been watching you. I can't even want to say that. I'll tell you, John Verdi's 100. He's a faithful man of God. I'll tell you that right now. He's a faithful man. This is about the corporate church. There are times in your life you're going to feel like you're on all eight cylinders. Amen? And there are going to be times in your spiritual life you don't even think you're on the radar. There'll be times when you're, you're being used by God a hundredfold, and guess what? There'll be times you don't even know if there's any fruit in your life at all. But corporately, you bring today your hundred, and you bring your thirty. I'll bring my sixty today. Next month, I'll bring my sixty. You bring your thirty. And we come together, and guess what? We've got a harvest for the Lord. It's the church who brings in the harvest. No one person brings in a harvest for the Lord. It is a corporate thing we do. Let's close with this. Three marks. Actually, I'm not going to. I'm going to close with that last remark. That the growth of 130 and 60 is not a competitive nature between Christians or Christian churches or Christian denominations where all of us have gone out into the world to corporately work for the Lord. One man sows, one man reaps, but God gives the increase. God gets all the glory. One day you are down, and we strengthen each other. We encourage each other. Sometimes I'm down like Moses, and Aaron and her have to come up and lift up Moses' arms because we're all frail. We're all human beings. We all need one another, and we all have to depend on God. Amen? Amen. Let's leave it with that. Father, we thank you for the word, Father God. And as we go out into the world, Father God, prepare our hearts to... What we're going to see out there, Father God, let us have the distinguishing signs of good, fertile ground, Father God. And where the ground doesn't look too fertile, give us the patience. Give us the long-suffering. Give us the ability to pray and to continue to talk to him about the love of Jesus, Father God. And God, in all our well-doing, encourage us, never give up. For if we do not give up, we will reap a harvest. So in Jesus' name we pray.